0: Greetings, NSA Nation, and welcome to your 2013 January-February edition of Voices of Experience. I'm Theo Andros, and I'll be your host. We kick off this first edition of the new year with a segment you may want to listen to over and over again, honestly. Stephen Gaffney of JustBeHonest.com is our featured guest, and in this segment, he shares his 10-step selling process that turns single engagement inquiries into long-term multiple engagement contracts. This is not something he ordinarily teaches, and it is not part of his public offerings. It is something he developed internally to better sell his services, and he has kindly agreed to share it with us here on VOE. His business consistently does over seven figures in annual revenue, which I share with you only to demonstrate that his system works. It's a rapid-fire interview that goes pretty fast. I apologize in advance for how fast we're talking, but I promise you, if you will listen carefully and apply what he teaches, you might just transform your business. Join me now as I sit down with Stephen Gaffney. So Steve, one of the challenges in your business, and I think it's something that most speakers face, is how do you duplicate yourself? And most speakers have struggled with finding somebody who can sell them. And for years, you were the best at selling you. And you've been through a lot of salespeople over the years, and you've yet to find anybody that could sell you and what you do as well as you do. I think out of that frustration, you sat down and created a document. You went through what is your process, right? You analyzed your process. Talk a little bit about what had you do that, and then let's jump right in and talk about those steps.
1: Well I realize if I don't write it down and I'm not thinking through the process, I can't possibly teach other people to do it. I mean just like any content for what we all do for a living and we teach others in our case about honest communication, if I don't give somebody a methodology on how to accomplish it, then they're not going to accomplish it. Well the same thing is with our sales process. So I wanted other people to be able to sell me, but how can they sell me unless I tell them exactly what I'm doing in the sales process?
0: Well what's really important though is a distinction is that you were very effective at selling yourself. And, you know, a lot of speakers struggle to sell themselves. A lot of speakers say, gosh, once I get there, I do a great job, but getting the job is difficult. I think what's really important here for our listeners is that you were very, very effective at selling yourself. You just weren't effective at teaching other people
1: how to sell you. Absolutely. But originally, I was not even very successful at selling myself. And one of the reasons why is I was so hung up on, I've got a message, I'm going to save the world and do all this other kind of stuff. But what I realized is this is really about the customer, the client, and really coming from their needs, their challenges. And actually, my objective is to help them accomplish the goals that they want to accomplish. And so coming from that as a shift was also very telling because what that revealed was how good was I at really helping them accomplish their objectives. And so we became a lot better and more proficient at accomplishing
0: that. I think also by identifying that as your objective, you became better at it. Were
1: you always good at helping clients reach their objectives or is that something that evolved over time? Randy Pennington says, the marketplace doesn't lie. <laughs> I think it's very telling. I wasn't getting hired or I wasn't getting hired enough. And you know, I could say, well, it's this, it's that. No, I approach it like it's me. One of the assumptions I have in life is whatever happens, I assume it's my fault. People say, we shouldn't assume it's your fault. You know, it's just, that's kind of hard on yourself. Well, you can, you can sugarcoat it or whatever you want, but whatever's happening, I assume that it's my fault. And that's actually good news because if I assume that it's my fault, then I can actually do something about it. If I assume it's the economy, if I assume it's another speaker, if I assume they really don't have the budget, then it takes me out of the control, out of the situation. So what was happening in my business, I assumed that it was my fault. And you know what? I think it was my fault. So what did you do about it? Uh, so we improved the content, we started thinking about how can I better sell the business. And it's not only about selling the business, then you got to deliver the business. We became much better at doing all of that. You know, my subject matter to begin with is a soft topic, if you think about it, honest communication. I mean, it's not even really what people perceive that they need. So I had another hurdle, which is I was selling something that people don't even perceive that they need, although I realized it was crucial to their success. So what I became much better at was rather than restating about honest communication, really think about how I could sell that process. And one of the ways to sell the process is to really say, look, forget about what I do. Tell me what's going on with you. And then when they share with me what's going on, then if I can tie in what I do to help them and make that connection for them, we're going to win the business. And that's exactly what we've done.
0: All right, so let's take it. Let's just go step by step. You've created a ten-step selling process on how you sell sell your business. Just take me through your process.
1: Well, the first thing is to introduce yourself and your company. You know the whole elevator speech. But the objective of the elevator speech at the beginning of the conversation is to actually level set and make sure that they understand what you do. Because if the customer doesn't understand overall what you do, they may only talk about certain aspects of what's going on with them, and they won't talk about the total picture. So it's really important to present all. All your capabilities. And I don't mean rambling on. I mean, in a very short, succinct way. And so then, give us
0: an example of how you do that. What do you say when you introduce yourself in your company?
1: So we teach honest communication. In other words, the big problem in the workplace is not what people say, it's what they don't say. So our objective in our business is to actually help get that unsaid said, to help executives and managers eliminate being surprised and blindsided. That's essentially what we do. So that was probably less than 30 seconds. Absolutely. And so that's how you start the – that's step one of your process. What's step two? Well, step one is very important so that they're willing to engage in the process. See, because if we don't present it in an intriguing way of value to them, they're not going to want to talk to us. So really the objective of an elevator speech is to have them want to engage in the conversation, not to tell them absolutely everything about you possibly could do, including saving the world. So go back and restate your elevator – your 30-second – what it is that you do? How do you introduce yourself and your company? Basically, we say we teach honest communication in the workplace. In other words, the big problem is not what people say, it's actually what they don't say. So our objective is to help get that unsaid said and for managers and executives to eliminate getting surprised and blindsided by issues they didn't even know about so they can resolve things to improve their revenue and profitability. So there's the big what's in it for them in that opening statement absolutely and then and then i go right into so tell me about what's going on what are your toughest challenges which is step number 2 probe to discover their overall challenges and goals and this is just basically the standard questions we know to ask but the question is are we asking these questions what are the issues what are the challenges what are the toughest problems you're having to deal with and that's really important to ask these questions no matter what they say why they're calling you or what they're calling you about so for example if they're calling you about an offsite or a particular conference. You can treat that as a one-off engagement, but we don't look at it that way. We look at it as a potential way to build a relationship and to build a contract as a longer term engagement. So the reason why I'm bringing that up is so the our probing questions are designed to really find out what's really going on. And here's the thing. I really do care what's going on. You know, if we ask questions, but we don't really care about the answer, we're not going to really listen to the answer and we won't engage with the customer. So None of what we're going to be talking about really will help unless a person really believes that they are trying to help out the customer. If we think, oh, I'm just trying to sell a speech, sell a bunch of products, um, consulting or whatever, they can feel it. And and another thing I've realized is people at a high level, they've been through all these sales courses, marketing courses and everything else. They know exactly what we're doing. And so if we ask questions from an insincere way, they can pick it up. So probing will not work unless we really care about them. So what is your probing question? What is the question you open with, Mr. Step two. A lot of different questions, but the number one question I ask is, so what are the toughest issues you're dealing with in your business? It's just very generic. It's just opening up the dialogue. Well, it's
0: generic, but it's also conversational. You're getting the conversation started. So as they start talking about their issues, how do
1: you respond? Well, say, tell me more about that and really want to flesh out some of the toughest challenges. Any other challenges? So the first step is to introduce yourself. The second one is to probe to discover your overall challenges and goals. The third step is to say, okay, so out of all the challenges you just described to me, what are the top challenges overall, and this is really important because sometimes when somebody's saying all their toughest challenges, it's not going to come through a one through five order with priority. The last one might have been the most important one or the middle one might might be really important. But really the key to step number three about prioritizing what are their toughest challenges is really important because just because somebody says they're having this tough challenge doesn't mean they're going to want to pay for somebody to help solve that particular challenge. They may think they already have that challenge handy. So it's really important to say out of all the challenges you've talked about what is most on your mind what is the top priority so step step number three
0: step number three is to prioritize and focus on their true wants and needs and you do that by recapping what they've shared with you in step two but you're, you're putting it back on them you're asking them what is most important to you of the things we've talked about Absolutely. All right, and then what's step number
1: four? Step number four sounds like a similar step, but it's basically discover what obstacles are standing in the way of them achieving with their wants and their needs. The idea behind this is to just double check. So in other words, so you said the toughest challenges overall is new market segments and building a cohesive leadership team that is really aligned. Yes. Well, so what's in the way of accomplishing this right now? If you know this is a top challenge, what has been in the way of you solving this? This is really revealing because sometimes what a customer will say is, well, we've tried to do this. We've had other courses, other consultants, and it hasn't worked. Okay, what's gotten in the way? So step number four is to really double check and probe further to find out with what they say is their top challenge, what's getting in the way of accomplishing that. And that's equivalent to think about like a doctor saying, okay, so your knee is really bothering you. That's really what's on your mind. Yes. Well, what do you think has been getting in the way? And then you, through a doctor's line of questions, they discover, wait a minute, it's really the back that might be getting in the way. This may not be the best analogy, but the idea is to really come from a position of discovering what is in the way of them accomplishing their top priorities. So from that point, then moving on to step number five, what do you do in step five? That's really the key. This is where I think we have to ask ourselves as speakers, as consultants as coaches, whether we really do this and and do this well, and that is help them quantify their challenges, pains, and problems. You know, again, my subject matter seems very soft, honest communication, but through a line of questions and helping them discover what's going on with them and turning those challenges into how it affects the bottom line is really the key. So an example would be we had a client call us and they just wanted uh, me to do an offsite. So we said, what are your toughest challenges? And, you know, probed accordingly. And what what was revealed was our leaders are taking a long time to accomplish what they need to accomplish. And so the way I get them to probe and to quantify is I use this line. Can you give me an example of that? And so sure enough, she gave me an example. Well you know there was, there, was a, there was a project that was supposed to take four months, but it turned into a year and a half and then I asked her how many people were involved in that project what, what do they make um, you know per hour Of course they're not hourly employees, but essentially I helped her quantify how that project instead of taking four months took a year and a half and then she came up with a figure and then I asked her how often do these types of things happen and suddenly we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and the by the time we helped her quantify all the challenges, when it came to, well, okay, we can do an offsite, but uh, what you may want to look at is a series of leadership sessions we could do and some consulting and some products to help you solve all of this, that's how we turned that one-off engagement into a big, huge contract.
0: So when you say quantify, you're actually helping them to assign a dollar value to whatever issue they're having. What is it actually costing them in
1: terms of revenue or dollars the organization absolutely that is the key and i don't care how soft a topic is you can quantify anything and one of the best ways to help somebody come up with a figure is to say give me an example and then have them turn that example into time which is often easy to to monetize Absolutely. Here's another example. Somebody said, "Well, you know, I have a tough challenge. Is you know, one of my leaders doesn't really work well with other people, but he's so talented." Okay, give me an example. Well, you know, he was supposed to accomplish this, but by his attitude, people didn't really want to engage with him. And in fact, you know what? I just had one of our top employees leave, and I said to this leader, "How long will it take for you to find a new person to replace that person?" And it turned into two to three weeks. And I said, "Hmm, that's kind of an interesting issue." And he said, "Yeah, I, I." really do need to take care of this person. And what he realized is that by his failure to actually address that other leader who was not doing the job in a very good way, in a teamwork type way, it was going to cost him time, which of course costs money.
0: All right. So wait, basically what you've done is you've assigned a dollar value. You're, you've helped them recognize financially what it's costing them, what this issue you've uncovered, you've helped them monetize and figure out what it's costing them. Once you've
1: done that, what do you do at step number six? Yeah. Before I even get to step number six, let me make a couple of key points. One is you don't have to do these steps in order and you don't have to do all these steps, but it generally flows one step into another. So step number six is to take them to the website. Right now, our website isn't where, let's put it this way, where I want it to be. But it still is effective because what essentially I'll say to the person who we're selling or potentially selling is, are you in front of a computer? Yes. Well why don't I take you to the website? So I take them to our website and I go to our keynotes and seminars page and I have them and then I hit some of the keynotes and seminars that I think would actually be most helpful to them. Then I'll ask them, okay, so out of all these sessions, which do you think is the most important? This is an excellent way to test how well we are in the sales process to see if, in fact, they are really intrigued and engaged in the work we could do. Because what they may say is, well, there's a lot of sessions, but I really think our issue is XYZ. So it might have told me that I might have missed the mark. But usually what happens is they say, oh, this session would be great. This session would be great. Oh, and this session would be great. And this is important because... If we just say, oh, afterwards you can go to our website or we send them a link, let's face it, we are all time impoverished. And most of us don't take the time or the necessary time to really investigate and check out other websites as thoroughly as we could. So actually I built that into the sales process to do that. So rather than recommending that they go to your website, you go there with them. Absolutely. And I don't take them through all the pages. It's just essentially the keynotes and seminars page. I might take them to our products page, and that is just to actually – if I think some of the products would be helpful. But the most important time within the limited time that I have with somebody on the phone and engaging with them is to take them to the keynotes and seminars page.
0: Okay. Once you've taken them to the website, what do you do
1: next? Well, here's the key. Is finding out the budget. Now, what's the standard question everybody asks? You know, what is the budget you have to address these issues? And everybody usually says, I don't have a budget, which basically means, I don't want to tell you. So one of the things I found effective on step for step number seven is essentially you find out the budget. And one easy way to do that is to say to somebody, well, out of everything we've talked about and you essentially recap the conversation and recap the amount of money and time that it's costing them to not address these issues what kind of money or budget could you put towards this? Are we talking about 30,000, 100,000, a quarter of a million dollars? Essentially you wanna throw out a range of figures and usually they'll react to one of those figures. They'll say, well, you know, we only have 100,000 or we only have 30,000 or gosh, we don't even have that. All we have is XYZ amount. But either way, it's very telling. And if they're still resistant on giving you the budget or at least reacting to that, I often will add in, look, I'm not trying to burn your budget. I just want to get a good gauge of where we're at, and I'm also not asking you to commit to dollars. We'll design a plan, and then you can do whatever you want related to that plan. But I'm just trying to save you time and essentially going back and forth with a million different proposals by basically trying to find out essentially where we're at. Then we'll put together a specific plan on how to accomplish that. And then you can give me a reaction from there and we'll adjust the plan accordingly. All right. So that's step number seven, find the budget. What is step number eight? Discover who makes the final decision. Now, usually... We probably have picked this up along the way, but just as a good double check, you may want to say to the person, is there anybody else that needs to be involved in this decision-making process? Is there anyone else that you want to bring in before we're able to move forward and commit to this proposed working agreement? Is there anybody else that needs to see this proposed working agreement? Essentially, you just want to double check if you haven't already picked this up, who makes the final decision. So you
0: have a 10-step process. You don't determine if they're the key decision maker until step number eight? Well,
1: Great question. Usually it gets revealed early on because a lot of our questions aren't really answered that well if somebody can't make a decision. The step that really reveals whether they are the decision maker is step number five. When you ask somebody to give you examples and how it's impacting the bottom line, somebody who's in a, a side position or a recommender but not, enough, you know, not a high-level recommender or a decision maker has a difficult time quantifying their pain. So usually when you're asking that line of question, it gets revealed, are they really the decision Decision maker. And you may actually find it even early on when you ask, just tell me what are the toughest challenges with their business? Because they may say, well, there's a lot of challenges, but I don't know what Joe, Henry, or Herman would say, but I would say this. And then, okay, well, tell me a little bit about who else might want to give a perspective on their tough challenges and issues. All right, so once you've established who makes the decision in step number eight, what do you do in step number nine? Now we're wrapping up for the close, and that is set up the next steps. One of the biggest mistakes I think people do is they don't leave with a specific next step and then The number one specific step is schedule a time and a date as a follow-up to this conversation. Sounds obvious, but usually people say, so I'll send you a proposed working agreement and let me know what you think about it. Or let's touch base sometime next week. But what I often will do is, okay, we'll send a proposed working agreement by close of business Friday. And now let's schedule a time for us to kind of go through that proposed working agreement uh, next week. When do you have time to accomplish that? So it's very important to leave with a specific date and time because otherwise you're playing telephone and email tag. All right, so how do you wrap up? Now you, you've gone through your nine steps, you've set your next step. What is step number 10. Step number 10 is make sure you end on a positive note. If you've done this processing and you've done it pretty effectively, they probably have shared with you some very, very important stuff. And so you want to make them feel good about this. You want to make them feel that that you can really help them out. And not just make them feel that way, it's because hopefully you really can help them out. So you essentially want to say, listen, I really appreciate all the information. I'm really excited about moving forward with you. If you have any questions, let me know. And I look forward to talking to you next week, a Tuesday at three o'clock as we planned. So there you have it, Stephen Gaffney's 10-step
0: sales process. that takes a single engagement inquiry and turns it into a six-figure consulting agreement. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. We now go to Raleigh, North Carolina to meet CSP Denise Ryan to learn how to own your local market. I understand that you've done a great job of really owning your neighborhood, basically. Talk to us about that.
2: In North Carolina, (laughs) solely, everybody knows me there. I've done a lot of work with uh, the association execs of North Carolina, a lot of networking there. So a lot of the associations, they all know me. What kind of
0: work have you done with them?
2: Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. You name it. I'm one of those people that have developed more and more topics because my clients request them. So, okay. you know how they always say you've got to be an expert? <laughs> I'm that horrible person they hold up and say, she does customer service, and she does leadership. But the core of everything is is motivation for me. I might go and do a motivational keynote for an association, and then they say, oh, but we want you to do a breakout. Can you do customer service? And sometimes I can do the topics they like, and, and sometimes I can't.
0: And it was, for, it was an example of a topic that you haven't been able to do.
2: Oh, diversity. I know nothing outside my area of expertise. Can't do it. All right. So don't do that one. And team building is another one I tend not to do because my theory is the leader should build the team okay. rather than somebody from the outside.
0: Was it a conscious choice to go really deep within your neighbor, your community?
2: not, no, not conscious at all. I always thought, oh, I'll be traveling globally. I'll be one of those people. But the way I've built my business is very intense relationship building. I'll meet someone, they'll like me, they'll hire me as a speaker, and then they want me to come back. For example, the uh, North Carolina CPA Association met the head of the association. So he brought me in, did one program for them, and that was their business and industry conference. And they said, oh, we want you to do our women's conference. And we're starting a young CPAs group. We want you to speak for them. And then can you go out and speak to our chapters? So it's been really deep within that one. So then, of course, I called South Carolina CPA Association and got to them. But it's been harder to jump states. I've done Alabama. I've done a couple of them, but it's mostly been North and South Carolina. Do you want to jump states? Sure. Why? More business. More travel. (laughs) More money. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can't complain. I mean, any day when you can get up, go do a keynote and come back and work the rest of the afternoon. It's great. Yeah, it is great. It's, I mean, I love that.
0: A lot of speakers are, have done just the opposite. They've done a lot of travel. They haven't done a great job of, of building their backyard. Right. So talk to us about building your business close to home.
2: Okay. Well, I, you're going to say I'm so old school and lame. You're so
3: old school. I, <laughs>
2: This is what I've done. I started with community colleges. This was 10 years ago. Small business centers hired speakers. And I used to be a small business consultant. So I started in the community college college circuit. There's 58 of them in North Carolina. And if you speak at one, they cross-market And your phone starts to ring. So I'm speaking at all these community colleges in all these towns. How'd
0: you choose community colleges? What had
2: you do that? Oh, well, I went, when I first decided I'm going to be a speaker, I went to the small business center at my local community college. And he said, well, we hire speakers, put together a seminar, and I'll hire you. So I was like, okay. He says, well, we'll pay $50 an hour. And I was new to the bill. I'm like, okay. (laughs) my first one, three-hour seminar for $150. We're
0: not supposed to talk about fees.
2: Oh. You, can you guys edit that out? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we don't want anyone to know about your $50 fee. Go ahead. Keep going.
2: So anyway, started with those guys. Right. And then business people would come to the seminars, and they could hire me at a more my standard fee. But it got me all over the state very quickly. So did that. Then I joined the Association Execs of North Carolina, which is all the associations, and did that old school. Would go to the meetings, would network, would meet the people. Plus, I had their directory. And I send out to this day a paper newsletter. I know, shocking stamps are involved. I mean, <laughs> but people love it. When they go to a new place, they're like, oh, Denise, you gotta keep sending me the flamethrower. That's my newsletter. So I also have an e-version, but the paper one, it, it's, it gets a hit. Me, it's a yeah. hit. So I have the database. Most of the names in there are North Carolina, because if you hire me once, you're going to hire me again. I get a ton of repeat and referral business, but it's, it's, again, it's in state. So association execs, total networking. I've also, recently I just joined our local SHRM chapter. I've done a lot of speaking for HR people. So I'll do that same networking model, which again, it's totally old school, but it's face-to-face. If I can meet somebody, I, I still think a lot of it's relationship building. They like you, they hire you. Thank you, Denise. And now a message about the upcoming
0: How and Now Business Retreat formerly known as the Winter Meeting.
4: Here's you. Hey. And here's that part of your speaker brain that decides things. Eh, uh, maybe. Things like whether you're coming to NSA's How and Now Weekend, a business retreat for people who want to speak more or speak better. What? So what if that part of your brain found out that instead of attending a completely unrelated mishmash of session topics, you'd commit the whole weekend to one focus, marketing or delivery? Oh. And what if that part of your brain found out that top marketing and delivery experts were going to skip the intro, the build-up, and the why this is so important, time-sucking content you loathe, and instead jump directly to the how content you love? Hmm. What if that part of your brain found out you'd get in-depth how-to insights and tangible tools? And instead of reams of indecipherable notes, you'd start to implement takeaways now, in the moment, in small groups, while receiving one-on-one feedback and coaching. Whoa. What if that part of your brain found out that instead of getting buyer's remorse, you'd automatically get all of the session audio recordings, including the focus area you didn't choose? Nice. And what if that part of your brain told us to stop irritating you with what-if statements and instead state the when and where of how and now? Come on. Well, okay. The How and Now Weekend, a business retreat for people who want to speak more or speak better, is February 22nd through 24th, 2013, at the San Francisco Airport Marriott Waterfront. Register at nsaspeaker.org. Once again, here's you. Hey. And here's that part of your speaker brain that decides things. Uh. And it's already decided, right? Uh, Yeah. Our next segment is called Five
0: Shore Ways and features NSA member Rob Shore sharing five ways to better do just about anything. This month, he talks about email marketing and shares his five shore ways to increase
5: open rates and reader engagement. Rob? Today on Five Shore Ways, we want to focus on five shore ways to get your email messages actually opened and acted upon. At Wholesalermasterminds.com, we operate in a very tight niche, and in that niche, we send our emails every Sunday night at 815 to a list of 10,000 people. Now, the key there is that we're getting about a 45% open rate on our emails. And the most important word was every Sunday night at 8.15. So the first and most important of the five sure ways to get your emails open and act upon is consistency. We had tried occasional emails and occasional emails, for us, result in occasional results. So we went back to every Sunday night, 8.15, We're on our over 100th email now and we have documented proof that this has been accretive to both our brand and our business. Number one is consistency. Number two is to have a better subject line. You know, we have about 2.7 seconds, according to exacttarget.com, to actually have our reader take action other than delete. We want our subject lines to be different than every other subject line that's inside of our email box. Go to your email box right now. Go to your email inbox right now. Take a look at it. You see how every one is similar to another. Every subject line is similar to another. You know, a great subject line will make the reader curious or has an element of absurdity or is simply irresistible. More important than anything else, it's just different than every other one in your inbox. So get creative with your subject lines. That's number two. Number three is to have a compelling first sentence. Have you ever opened an email and the first thing that you're faced with is a block of text, perhaps a hundred, Maybe 150 words long. And the first thing that you want to do is, well, not read it and put it in your i read it later folder. I do that, except I never read in my I read it later folder. So let's make that first sentence an opening just in the same way that you would open for one of your talks. It's gonna have a bold statement, it's gonna have a famous quote, it's gonna have a big question, it's gonna say something contentious, but it's going to be able to draw, in this case, the reader in to let them know that they can invest a little bit more time here actually consuming your message because you may have something really valuable to say because the subject line inferred it and the first sentence inferred it, so let me move on to the body. So the next one is to be able to be very cognizant of the format of your email. Images yes or no, we prefer no. There's too many email clients, i.e. Outlook, that might be set to don't show me images, so my image could actually be lost. We prefer no images. Our email lengths are plus minus 200 words. We prefer to be very clipped in terms of how we structure our email. Every sentence, that is to say every paragraph, is a sentence or two, not longer. We always want to make our emails personalized. And we want to check the from to make sure that when we're actually sending our email that the from has the right message in it. So the next one is to make sure that our format is absolutely correct. And the last one is we want to make sure that we're telling a story. As speakers, we know that stories are the most important way to connect with people, but why is it? Why is it that when we are getting into emails, we tend to go into business mode, and when we go into business mode and start mailing to our list, we don't necessarily communicate in the same fashion as if we were sitting across the desk from someone. What about bringing that personality, that ability to communicate that you have verbally into your written word in your email? So once again, those five sure ways to make sure that your email messages are not only open but acted upon. Number one is consistency. Occasional emails yield occasional results. Two is the subject line. Make sure it stands out from everyone else inside of your inbox. Number three is to have a compelling first sentence that draws me in. Number four is to have a format that is scannable because we do not read anymore online. We actually scan. We want to make sure that our emails are scannable. And number five is to actually tell me a story so you can draw me in and then lead me to whatever that call to action is that's going to have me want to buy your product, hire you, buy your book, whatever the case may be. I'll talk to you again next time on Five Short Ways. Thank you, Rob. We now go
0: to 2012 NSA Convention Chair CSP Patrick Henry to hear about what he learned sitting on the other side of the table as a meeting planner, planning a convention, and working with speakers.
3: Patrick? Theo, thank you for asking me to be a part of this voe as the 2012 nsa convention chair i can't tell you how much i learned about being a professional speaker simply by sitting on the other side of the decision makers desk i saw a side of the meeting planning process that i would never seen before as a result i learned a lot of things that have changed the way I do business. This changed the way I interact with meeting planners and my business has benefited because of it. And I think that your listeners businesses will as well. First and foremost, I want everybody to understand that the meeting planner has an emotional attachment to their convention. Act like you care. Laura, Donna, Vanna and I, we put so much time and energy and passion into creating this convention that we started to feel ownership and so when we selected our general session speakers they became our team they became our speakers because they were the ones who were going to define the convention. I was very appreciative at how responsive those speakers were. We sent out a lot of emails and a lot of correspondence. Some of it was more important than others. Some of it was critical. We had to have certain things signed. Every one of our speakers was right on on the money. I mean, that they responded quickly, promptly, appropriately. I can only imagine how it would have been if our speakers were not that way. It would have become chaotic. My recommendation is that you convince that meeting planner that their meeting is important to you as well. I I don't care if it's the Mississippi Soybean Growers Association. If I get that call, that meeting planner is going to think that it has been my life's dream to speak for a bunch of Mississippi soybean farmers. Make them think you care. Secondly, decisions are made Fast. Sure, we put a lot of research into our speakers, but when we came into that final meeting and I told everybody, bring a list, bring a top 10 list or a top five list of speakers you'd like to see on the stage. Even though some of us had the same speakers, most of the speakers were different. And so there was a lot of horse trading going on and it became very quick. It was sometimes very small things that influenced our decisions. For example... I had some speakers on my list who I know would have done a great job. They were brilliant speakers, but they didn't receive consensus from the group. And it's because they weren't as well represented as other speakers are. Which leads me to my third point. Your video matters. The number one influencer in that meeting room was video And so Sally talked about it in her keynote speech. She said that you ought to spend as much on a video as you would get for one keynote. And I'm not going to talk about specific numbers, but I will say this. I still consider myself a commodity speaker, meaning when somebody hires me, I've got three or four other speakers that are competing for that same job. They're looking to fill a slot. And so I've got to make sure that my video, my website And my materials are better than the other guys. And I know for a fact that I've missed out on opportunities because I hadn't put as much energy and resources into creating a better video. And that is number one priority for me now. And it should be for you as well, because your video is the best representation of what they're going to see on their stage. Number four, content, your content matters. Meeting planners want it. This is what we're looking for when we're initially when we're getting speakers, is the content. Donna Cutting, she was tasked with spearheading the breakout sessions for our convention. And she did a really good job of reaching out to NSA members and asking, what are you looking for? What's important to you? What topics should we be focusing on? We heard a resounding, we want content. One thing we realized is, that as important as our shtick is, as our talent, as our performance is, we also have to answer a fundamental and basic question. And that question is, what problem can you solve for my members? If you can't answer that question, I don't care how funny you are. I, can't, I don't care how well you can sing or, or what you've, how many mountains you've climbed. If you can't solve a problem for your members, there's a good chance they're going to go with somebody who can Number five, differentiation matters. Different. I was recently talking with the incoming president for a major national association, 20,000 members. Some of you have spoken for this association. Now, I was asking about the keynote speakers. Convention this big is certainly going to have high-dollar keynote speakers. I asked who they were getting. Well, they didn't get this guy, but he said, I'm trying to get Tony Blair. I said, really? How much does Tony charge? blew my mind when, when he told me, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I said, what in the world could Tony Blair say to your members that would make one ounce of difference in their business? He couldn't answer that question, and that's when it hit me. He was trying to outdo last year's president, and I started thinking, I was too. You know, I wanted to blow Randy Gage out of the water. I wanted Eric Chester in the fetal position, looking for a happy place, going, oh, if my convention could have only been as good as Patrick's. Now, I'm not sure that I did that, but that's kind of the mindset. We're competitive by nature. And so my point is, the more you can differentiate yourself, sure, your content's important, your performance is important, but do you bring something to the table that no one else has? And if you, and if you accent that, that's going to make the meeting planner think, okay, this is going to be different from last year. Number six, bribes are, pre- oh, wrong one, sorry. Number seven, communication with the meeting planner is important. Now, I talked a little bit about this, but this is more to the point, let me know you're alive. Let me know you're still coming. Let's talk the week before just to say, hey, everything's good to go. Give me, send me a text when your wheel's down at the airport just to let me, let me mentally check that one off my list. I realize you may do 100 of these a year, but I'm doing this one, and guess which one's the most important to me? This one. Don't let the speaker, you, be one of the things that the meeting planner has to worry about. Another thing, number eight, you know, just like the meeting planner has an emotional attachment to their convention, so does the audience. If you've ever been sitting in a in a in a convention and the meeting plan I mean the speaker starts to speak poorly of the hotel, of the association, I start to take it personally. The audience does too. So I know that when a speaker stands before NSA and praises us, it makes me feel good. It validated my paying money to be there, my choosing to associate with these people. And so my recommendation is that you do not criticize the event or the group. If you do, you do so at your own risk. Finally, help the meeting planner promote the event. It's becoming expected now, but not everybody does it. And so you can set yourself apart by offering to film videos, promoting their event that they can send out to their membership, Uh, use social media, blog about their event. Anything you can do to become a partner with The Meeting Planner will help increase that emotional real estate and will help create that rapport with The Meeting Planner and with the event you're speaking to. I believe that NSA speakers are the best in the world. I believe that NSA has some of the best speakers in the world. And it's my hope that whenever a meeting player hires an NSA member, they know that in addition to great content and great performance, their job just got easier. So I hope you book a lot of business in 2013. And can't wait to see what comes next.
0: Thank you, Patrick. And thank you, too, for a great convention in Indianapolis. You and your convention team did a stellar job, though not as stellar as Randy Gage and I did in L.A. the summer before. Our next guest is retired Army Colonel Rick Kiernan, here to talk to us about working with the media and the keys to being an effective spokesperson. Rick served as the Pentagon spokesperson during the first Gulf War and was director of press operations and public information during the 1996 Olympics. So, Rick, you were the 1996 Atlanta Olympics media director, is that correct?
6: Yes, I worked uh, after I retired from the service. I went down and was the director of press operations, and it was a good transitional assignment, so I had to set up the main press center for all the journalists from about 190 countries. Uh, So I learned a lot about rate cards and dividing up the space for the various uh, international journalists who were coming to cover the games. So it took about three years of planning from 93 to 96.
0: So, Rick, you have tremendous experience working with the media,
6: and a lot of our uh, NSA members have an opportunity to do media events,
0: interviews, and such. What lessons can you share with them from your experience with the media that would be
6: meaningful to them? I think, first of all, go in with the understanding that it's a symbiotic relationship. It is not contentious as it is sometimes portrayed. The media can be valuable colleagues and advocates to carry your message to a, spe- a specific audience. I have found that in being a spokesperson, you really have two audiences. You have the journalists and the correspondents who you deal with directly, and so you need all the skills you learn within the NSA family, but you also have to realize they are carrying the medium to a larger audience who is either going to support your institution or your organization for whom you're being the spokesperson. So I say it's a symbiotic relationship. I also found that the sense of a deadline in working with the media was very helpful as a spokesman, and that if you put it all together, it really has helped you helped me craft being succinct, thinking of being very specific. So sometimes when we do our speaking, you know, is a tendency to speak in broad terms and not get right to the focus. And so by working with the media, you're either responding to a query or you're preparing for a very special event where you really have to get the news out there there and do it very succinctly.
0: Well, Rick, you mentioned a moment ago that the uh, media relationship is symbiotic and not contentious. I read in your bio that you were the Pentagon
6: spokesperson during Gulf One. Wasn't that a contentious environment? Well, the way it worked out is it was once, a call, uh, once again built on media relations. And so when I deployed over to Riyadh to Saudi Arabia to work with General Schwarzkopf and his staff, what was very, very helpful there is having had the relationship back here in the building. So we were able to take those same relationships, carrying them over to Saudi Arabia, and not have to just pick up and begin to introduce ourselves and go through a mating dance of how we get along. So it was very comfortable for both the journalists who cover the beat, 32 men and women who actually have cubicles inside the Pentagon that I worked with on a daily basis and so It was really they depended on me and I depended on them. In giving them access, that helps them get their story and meet their deadline. And then by using the media, you're carrying the message to the internal and external audiences that you want to reach.
0: You talked before a little bit about being a spokesperson. What is the difference between being a spokesperson for an organization and being a spokesperson for your own agenda?
6: Preparation would be a common characteristic. You have to prepare for a speech if you're going to give a keynote, if you're going to give a luncheon speech. You do your study of the demographics, the age. The interest of the audience you're going to speak to, you then begin to craft your message and your speech, what's going to resonate with the audience. Likewise, you have to prepare when you are a spokesperson for the media. And you have two types of media. You have the special interest media or beat reporters, and they're very familiar with the context and the glossary of, let's say, the Pentagon or the Olympics or the corporate world. And so once again, you have to do your study on the demographics of the media. I have found over the years, for example, that there are more women coming in as journalists now. There's more women in the J schools than there were when I went through school. And so getting to know the media and how they respond to your audience is very, very important, because if you can't communicate with them, then they will misrepresent the message in carrying it to the larger audience. So what are some mistakes you've seen spokespeople make in the past? I think sometimes there's two levels of mistakes. First of all, within the corporation itself, there's a tendency for non-spokespeople to keep the vital information, particularly during a crisis situation, away from the spokesperson. They have a feeling that uh, you're friends with the media, so we better not let the public affairs person know, the spokesperson know, because they're liable to share it. That is one big mistake. So as long as you have the the information, you're able to craft it, give it context, and put it in perspective. And you can usually do a whole whole lot to take the sharp edges off that story. The second thing I think is for the person themselves in thinking that every time the phone rings, you know, the media is out to get you, that there's going to be a contentious call. I prefer to look at it in a way that the media probably has a list of those people who they do call because they know they're responsive, they know they're going to be accurate, and they're going to help them make their deadline. And I think you build those relationships over the years.
0: It was well documented that uh, General Schwarzkopf did a great job with his media relations. What made him so good? I think what
6: made him good was he trusted his public affairs staff. We had about 400 in media over there when I got to Saudi back in the summer of 90, right after the line in the sand, and I would have daily meetings with General Schwarzkopf and prepare him for his interviews the next day. So the hardest thing during those initial periods of August, September through the end of the year was having to keep the story in the news hole, if you will, while we waited for the ships and the tanks and all the other things to come by sea from Fort. Stewart, which is down in Georgia. And so many times, the media has to fill the news hole. And you want to make sure that in filling that news hole, you're giving them access to General Schwarzkopf and the people on his staff so that they have enough to provide to the readers and listeners an understanding of what is going on. By having those daily meetings with him for an hour or two in the evening, going over the questions that we had gotten from the journalists, what they wanted to speak about, and then doing the coordination back in Washington, with General Powell's office as the chairman, and also with Mr. Cheney, who was the SECDEF at that time. So there was really a triangulation as far as coordination going so that we adhered to the main principle of media relations, which is speaking with one voice. Media relations, you don't want it to be contentious on both sides. The media comes at it from a divide and conquer. They want to give the reader both sides of a story. However, if you are speaking with one voice and you have a characteristics of unanimity, then whatever they're saying back here in Washington is the same thing that's being said overseas. And in the end, the goal is to give the American people the most informative and accurate information that you can. What lessons did you learn from that experience that a speaker could apply to their business today? I think what I learned from that is, number one, it's about relationships, and I think for any speaker, whether they're working with a bureau, whether they're working for themselves or they're working with a staff, they have to realize that in many cases, a feature story about a speaker and what they do beyond just being on the platform and executing their skills— I think the lesson I learned is that you can get a lot of context by listening to the media as a source of information. That was the biggest thing I learned because there's more of them than there are spokespeople. So I found that very smart men and women, they're out on the beat. They have more sources than I do. And by listening carefully to them, it made me a better public affairs person. Is there any lessons from being a spokesperson that a speaker can apply to their interactions with their clients? I think the biggest lesson you can learn is that as a spokesperson, you have to be very aware that whatever you're saying on a telephone interview or face-to-face interview is going to be seen in a newspaper or it's going to be heard on the television that moment. When you're preparing for a speech, you have a larger audience, and different members of that audience are going to receive the message in a different way, but you're not going to have the impact, perhaps, that a spokesperson has to by having to live with it. I think the other thing is that by constantly being interactive with the media, it's like giving a speech every day. And it's the extemporaneous aspect of it that I found to be attractive as a speaker. I always enjoy the rotary speeches. I enjoy the formal speeches that I give to the academic community and the civic community. But what I found really honed my skills was having to be on cue and be extemporaneous on a moment's notice. That helped me be a better speaker.
0: How did Schwarzkopf, how did General Schwarzkopf get so good at dealing with the media? Was he a natural,
6: or was there a strategy or technique behind the scenes that we were not aware of? I think with General Schwarzkopf, uh, one of the things I felt he did most effectively is once a week we would meet with him, and he brought in everyone who communicated any type of a message. Obviously, as the spokesperson, My interface was with the media and setting up the interviews and preparing him for the interviews. However, we also had psychological operations, and there were messages that went out on leaflets. There were messages that went out on broadcasts and bullhorns. There were messages that went out... Uh, by our counterparts, the people who work within the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So I think the best thing that he did, which I felt was most effective, is by having all the parties who crafted any type of a message, we got together for an information coordinating committee so that whatever the the spokesperson was saying was in sync and complementary to the themes that we were putting out to the indigenous personnel.
0: Rick, it would seem that whether a speaker is ever going to be in front of the media or not, these are strategies that they could develop and implement into their business, whether they ever were broadcast. Just the idea of having a concise message that's consistent with their platform seems like it would be a real benefit to their business.
6: It absolutely will. And I felt that, you know, no matter what they do as far as their particular inspiration, when they get up and they speak, perhaps it's on fitness, perhaps it's on motivation, perhaps it's on mentoring, whatever they are working on in their particular niche and marketing I think it can also be an advantage to them to develop relationships with the local media because the media are always looking to fill that news hole. And if it's a local cable television show, if it's a local radio show, or I have found in the academic community, many of the universities, for example, are going to have a radio station and they're going to have a broadcast class or they're going to have some type of communications course. It is always wonderful for an NSA member to be able to go and volunteer to speak to the students about the skills required to be a professional. Speaker. Also, it gives you a nice network. You begin to work into the academic community, and you have a chance to mentor those particular students who are in the class.
0: How does a speaker go about doing that?
6: What I have done in the past is I've taken a look locally. For example, in the Washington area, there's a course at Georgetown on strategic communication. George Mason University locally is also putting together a PhD program on communication. And what I do is reach out and contact them and say, you know, would you like to add some practical application to your curriculum and your program of instruction? Because a lot of times in the academic situation, it can go to a committee and stay on a committee and be very theoretical. And they have always welcomed having someone who lives in the real world say, okay, this might be important when you put it into your academic development because this is what the student is going to use when they get out and they graduate. How is this a benefit to the speaker? This is a benefit, I think, to the speaker because it gives you credentials. To be affiliated, to have an association with an academic institution, I believe, gives you a breadth and a depth and takes you out into another field rather than just the corporate. There's nothing wrong with being an NSA and having a business for yourself and being paid for a fee to give that particular speech. However, if you go and you have that academic affiliation, it also gives you the ability to work with faculty members, with students, with parents, and with other people who come to that academic institution. So I think you're broadening your network and giving yourself real credibility.
0: Thank you, Rick, and thank you too for your years of distinguished service to our country. Speaking of credibility, having your CSP or being a member of the CPAE Hall of Fame gives you enormous credibility and access to special CSP, CPAE only events. Here to talk about one such event is the referral coach himself proud Terrapin supporter, University of Maryland alumnus and past VOE chair, CSP, CPAE,
7: Bill Cates. Bill? Hi, this is Bill Cates. Valerie Cate and I will be your hosts for the next CSP, CPAE Summit. The CSP CPA Summit is an intimate, high-level learning event where many of NSA's most successful members gather to share best practices and solve their most pressing challenges. The next summit is being held in downtown Chicago at the beautiful Boutique Palomar Hotel from late afternoon of Friday, April 5th to noon on Sunday, April 7th, 2013. We chose Chicago because of its easy access to all parts of the country. The working theme of the summit is Show Me the Money, a concept that never seems to go out of fashion. If you attended one or both of the last CSP CPAE Summits, then you know the value of getting together with other successful NSA members. This next summit is designed to be extremely interactive, providing every attendee with a high level of value that can be monetized. Is our business only about the money? Of course not. But if you'd like to tap into many of the best money-making practices from your peers, or if you'd like to bring to bear some of NSA's great minds on one or more of your business challenges, then you don't want to miss this extraordinary event. The summit will start off with a bang with a new learning format guaranteed to make sure you find value right away. The popular dine sessions will take place Friday evening, where you'll have a chance to go deep with several successful NSA members. The summit reaches its peak, if you will, with the highly popular mastermind groups where the money-making ideas flow like molten gold. If you're not yet a CSP, this type of high-level learning event is one more reason why you want to get cracking on earning your CSP designation. The CSP summit is limited to only 60 attendees and the last two sold out, So you better sign up now. The dates again are April 5 through 7, 2013 in Chicago. See you at the summit. Thank you, Bill. Our next guest is CSP
0: Wolf-Ranke, who seems to be earning more income in semi-retirement than most speakers earn working full-time. Join me now as we try to figure out how he's doing it. What I think is interesting, Wolf, is you would share with me that you've kind of transitioned into semi-retirement, but yet you've structured your business in a way where your income has continued to grow. How have you been able to do that?
8: Three key things. Number one, it's product. Number two, it's diversification. And number three... It's a combination of delivering extraordinary value and building a, a business based on relationships. Right, so product is pretty straightforward. Product is a driver, though. It's very. It's a key driver, and I, I think a lot of speakers miss it because they're young like you, right? They're energetic. They don't mind being on planes. Unfortunately, we all get older, right? Right.
0: <laughs> well, if we're lucky, right? <laughs> if, we, if
8: we're lucky, yeah, we but... get older, and then we don't want to be so much on planes. You know, I was always... I was always fanatical. I don't know whether you remember that, but I was always fanatical about product right from the get-go when I started speaking full-time in 1988. Well, I had my first book out even before I started speaking full-time. And that's because I got lucky and a publisher asked me to write a book. So from the beginning of your career, you were product-focused, product-driven. Absolutely. What types of products? Well, the first book, let's go back to the first book. Aspen Publishers uh, asked me, I was well-known in the industry uh, that I that I grew up, which was hotel and restaurant. And then when I got into the military, I spent 20 years in the Army Medical Department. I switched to dietetics. So I was very well-known in that and those markets, and they asked me to write a book. So my first book was The Winning Food Service Manager, Strategies for Doing More with Less. So that was my first book. And then in 1988, I retired from the military, 20 years of military. And then I started my quote unquote speaking business. But again, from the beginning, I was product focused. And then serendipity happened. Aspen told me, uh, your book is a bestseller. And about four months later, Jim calls me up and he says, "Uh, we're gonna discontinue your book. And I said, you're gonna what? He said, we're gonna discontinue your book. And I said, didn't you just send me a note uh, about four months ago telling me it's a bestseller? He said, "Yeah, but you know what? That's how we run our business. We run a book for X number." I said, "Well, you could have told me that in advance." So, to make a long story short. Here is one thing I did right when I negotiated that contract: I retained copyright. Okay, so I took the book back and I transformed it into a home study course. I kept the book. I developed a study guide to go along with it. Uh, that book, instead of thirty-two fifty, sold for. 149 95 with the study guide. That was the big beginning of us building our CPE home study business uh, that's targeting dietitians, about 80,000 dietitians in the, in the world. And we target them. We mailed between sixty and 70,000 catalogs to them twice a year. And that business has grown since 1989 to the tune of 10 to 15% a year. What is CPE? Continuum Professional Education.
0: Got it. So you created a, a CP, a Continuum Professional Education course for a specific vertical market
8: uh, Exactly. Exactly. Now, have you done that in any other industries? No. No, that's the that's the only so that's space the, we play in.
0: Okay, and you play very well in that space.
8: We are the second. There are two major players. We're one of the two major players. There are many, many little players, but two major players. Now we have fifty-three courses right now, and about twenty of those are written by me. The rest are all written by clinicians, you know, experts in diabetes and renal and and so on and so on. And they're all pre-approved and they're all peer-reviewed uh, publications. That's how my initial book ended up for us to start that business, which then subsequently has been growing ten to fifteen percent a year.
0: for the last twenty years, twenty plus yeah, years. Yeah. and yeah. You, so you've gone very deep in a specific market.
8: Right. right. And then while we're doing that, I'm also doing my speaking, uh, consulting, coaching, and, obviously, authoring.
0: But you've also tr- scaled that part of your life back tremendously. That part
8: of it, I've scaled back tremendously. Um, and that's
0: because a stage of life. you just reached a point in your life where you don't want to travel as much. Talk right. a little bit about that.
8: Yeah. So, what we've done with that, in order to scale it back, we decided to charge more. As you well know, when you charge more, you, you begin to lose clients. But you also gain clients. So, what we've said, we've be- be- become very aggressive about limiting my calendar, so we tell people, I'm available on such and such a date, and if you want me for any other date, I'm not available. So and at
0: the peak of your career, Wolf, how many dates a year would you do?
8: At the peak of my speaking
0: yes, at the speaking,
8: speak- consulting coaching career, uh, if you add those up, I probably did a hundred engagements per year. What do you do now? But a lot of those were done foreign. I did a lot of work in Germany. So I was in Germany once a month, every month for about seven years. Uh, I did a lot of work in in Copenhagen, Denmark. I was there seven times a year for about nine years. And then I did a lot of work in the Pacific Rim. So we cut all that out. So I do that business now. I still do the coaching and I still do it with, uh, for example, with uh, German, but I do it via Skype. (laughs) So that's perfectly fine. I do meet all the people that I coach at least once, but we do that in Newton Square, Pennsylvania, because they travel there anyway, or I'm speaking at one of their events and then they provide a mechanism where they can get part of their annual meeting, where they can get what I call on-demand coaching for one hour, and then they decide whether they want to continue with me. If they want to continue with me, then that's done by Skype. So, Wolf, this has been a conscious
0: decision on your part, though, to alter your business to meet your lifestyle. Is that correct?
8: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because uh, you know, as you get a little... This sounds fun to you, Theo. You're a youngster, right? (laughs) As As you get older, you become aware of how little time there is when you add up only your weekends. Mm. I want everybody to do that that's listening to Voices of Experience right now. I want you to add up the weekend. Just pick a time. We said, uh, Superwoman and I, we're going to be over 100 before we kick the bucket. But we said, up to age 80, we're going to be able to do the things we love to do, which is what? Cross-country skiing, hiking, biking, traveling, and do it well uh, without a walker and all this other stuff. You know what I'm saying? Right. So we said, okay, wherever you are on the stage of your life, I want you to add up the weekends to age 80. And then I want you to be conservative and say, look, 50% of the time, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. For example, we have grandchildren. We want to spend time with them. We can't be gallivanting around. And then I want you to see how many you got left. And it's scary. So we said, no, we don't want to do it that way. We want to work on average no more than three days a week. That was our goal, no more than three days a week. And and we've been able to do that and been able to do that really, really well.
0: So you've made a shift in your business where it's less dependent upon you being on an airplane. Exactly. You've created products and consulting, and then also by changing the delivery of your content by going to a Skype model versus you being there live has enabled you to really transform your business and, and your life.
8: Absolutely. And the reason why I'm on VOE, the time to think about it, is now. I don't care how young you are. I don't know. I don't care what stage of your business you're in. You need to think about it now, because if you want to build product, because I do think product is the key to you being able to travel less. Now, there are many other ways you can do it, but that is certainly a key for you to travel less. And the time to think about it is now, because you can't can't say, okay, I want to cut back, and, and now how am I going to do it? Well, you can, you can depend on your social security check, but that's not going to buy me the quality of life that I want.
0: It's a, it's a model that's, that's not dependent upon your age. This may be a lifestyle shift someone wants to make in their 40s or their 50s. And you, you've created a business that's no longer dependent upon you getting on an airplane. You've created these products. What types of products have you created, Wolf?
8: Uh, my expertise is management, leadership, and personal development. That's the three spaces I play in. So all of the books that I've... Uh, published either have had published or self published are uh, in that space, and then also you created a self study course and mentioned. then and then subsequent to that then we 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 put self study courses together with all those products so my CDs on winning management, which is based on one of my better selling books uh, winning management, is approved for uh, continuing professional education uh, credits so the book for for example is approved for twenty six CPEUs, continuum professional education units. And it's a book that sells for twenty four ninety five, but now it comes with a study guide that we developed with a hundred questions and explanations and so on. And now instead of selling for twenty four ninety five, it sells for one hundred forty nine ninety five. And that's an, an entirely different price point, an entirely different price point that allows you, obviously, to have a much higher level of profitability.
0: Now, this shift you made in your business, Wolf, is this a shift you could have done sooner?
8: For us, no, because serendipity remember the little, the little story I told you about how the publisher said they were going to discontinue the book? That was serendipitous. We didn't even plan for that. So, had the publisher
0: not discontinued your book, you would not have gone in this direction? Maybe
8: not, maybe not. I mean, we we had been thinking about it. We probably would have, but that was the impetus to get us to move, get off our butt, and actually do it.
0: So what lessons from that experience would you give for a first-time author negotiating a book contract?
8: Well, whatever you do, keep copyright. And the publisher will tell you, well, this is our standard contract. I will tell you there is no such a thing as a standard contract in a publishing business. And I'm a publisher. There is no such a thing, okay? So don't ever take that. Always negotiate for the things that you think are important. Copyright is probably the most important because it means that when the publisher doesn't want your book anymore, you can do with it whatever you want.
0: All right, what are some other things that an author should look for in in a publishing contract?
8: Royalties are very important. And it all depends what you want the book to do. If you want a book, uh, you mentioned somebody on, on VOE selling a million copies of a self-published book. If you want to sell lots of books, and we all do, all uh, right, then and, and if you want to go with a publisher, then the advance is critical to you. And here's the reason why. The advance is critical because that's the money the publisher is going to uh, provide you in advance. They seldom come back and collect if the book doesn't turn out to generate the level of revenue. Now, once you get a nice fat advance, then the publisher will do more publicity because publishers don't do publicity. Every one of the books that I've reached in my pocket, taken the advance, plus reached in my pocket and hired a publicist because don't count on the publisher to do it. They, 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 They do it crappy job.
0: So Wolf, looking back on a a 20 plus year career in the speaking business, what lessons have you learned that you wish you had, had learned earlier in your career?
8: Well, if I would do it all over again, I think that I would have segmented my market. I got away from the initial market that I got in simply because they wouldn't pay my fee. So I speak to any kind of audience. I speak to airlines, technology, company. I mean, it doesn't matter. I'd speak to so I speak to a wide variety. So if I did it all over again, I would pick a niche. You know, one of the the people that's done really well with that is Bill Cates, a colleague of ours. Certainly. Pick a niche. Pick a niche and then become extremely well known in that niche. I'm not well known in any niche When you get to my age, if you don't have a delivery uh, vehicle like we do, a CPE, that's our delivery, right? But that's a pull product because once the person gets that catalog in the hand, they need 75, every dietitian needs 75 CPEUs, just like lawyers, just like nurses, just like accountants. If they don't get those credits, they will lose their license. That means they will lose their job. So that's a pull product, not a push product. When I sell back of the room people don't need those products, right? I mean, their life goes on whether they buy that book or don't buy that book. To overcome that, you ideally want to become, as we all call it, a big fish in a little pond because that gives you the name recognition and that allows you to leverage whatever products you have and continue doing it when you get to where I am at where you wanna be less uh, less of the time on on airplanes.
0: So Wolf, you have niched yourself within that diet, with the the dietitians. You're saying though if you had it to do over again, you would have done that sooner?
8: No, we we only do that for CPE products. A lot of those people that get out my CPE product, they don't even know I'm a speaker. So, he, you, so
0: you and, would have also done that in your speaking business as well, then, is what you're saying.
8: Yes, that's the point I'm making. In the speaking business, I would have niched myself to a target audience that can afford your fee and that's big enough to support you over many years. I think the other thing that I did really well, and I would encourage everybody to do it, recognize that a lot of what we do over the long term is based on relationship. You got to have a goal of delivering extraordinary value. I have a rule of thumb. Um, for every buck I get paid, I want to deliver $10 worth of value. And if, if you do that fairly consistently, you don't have to negotiate your fee very hard.
0: Thank you, Wolf. Okay, NSA Nation, another edition of VOE is almost complete. But before we go, here's a word from our fearless leader, El Presidente himself, the always handsome, often funny, witty, warm, and all-around great guy, Ron Culberson with the President's Message.
9: Thanks, Theo. At the risk of ruining the appearance of the current edition of VOE, I must admit, I'm I'm actually recording this message on November 18th. I just got back from the NSA Board Strategic Planning Retreat, our fall board meeting, and the NSA Chapter Leadership Institute, formerly known as PRINCE, uh, formerly known as Camp NSA, that is. And what I love about these three events is that they involve current board members, past presidents, a variety of dedicated chapter leaders, and next year's chapter, Presidents. It's a wonderful blend of past, present, and future. It reminds me of when I look in the mirror. I feel like I did in college, but the gray hair on the side of my head reminds me that I am every bit of 51 years old. And the ever-expanding forehead peninsula on the top of my head shows me what I'm going to look like when I'm 80. It's a lovely blend of past, present, and future. Anyway, this year, NSA also hits a milestone. We turned 40. That's four decades of fulfilling the vision of our founder, Cavett Robert. At the Chapter Leadership Institute dinner last weekend, past NSA president Don Thorin talked about NSA's early days. Cavett and a few of his speaker buddies had developed this thing called the Phoenix Summer Sales Seminar. They charged people to come to a luncheon, which included a sales seminar, and then they used the money they had collected from attendees to pay for the food and room, which they later used the rest of the day to discuss the speaking business. I think this is a brilliant way of raising money and doing something valuable. Eventually, Cabot recognized the value of these gatherings, and he founded the National Speakers Association. The Articles of Incorporation were signed on July 12, 1973, which means we'll celebrate our actual anniversary just two weeks before the convention in Philadelphia. How's that for history meeting history? One of the original purposes of NSA, as it was actually stated in the Articles of Incorporation, was, and I quote, to promote and develop means whereby professional speakers and or lecturers can be provided with an opportunity to identify themselves and to associate with other speakers, unquote. I know that sounds a little legalese, but as you know, after NSA was founded, what actually happened was much more than that statement. Not only did NSA become the place where speakers could gather, it became a place where supposed competitors freely shared information about how they conduct their businesses, all in the spirit of helping each other succeed. At the time, and I'd say ever since, that concept has been a differentiating factor for our association. But as we move towards the future, we must build on that differentiation rather than assume that it's all we need to succeed. NSA CEO Stacey Teschner once said, We should honor the past but not be anchored to it. Now that principle is true in our lives, our businesses, and certainly in NSA. We must learn from the foundations of our past but never be so attached to one thing that it prevents us from moving towards the future at the chapter leadership institute the chapter presidents elect discuss the challenges of staying relevant in a world where most associations today are experiencing declining membership numbers and lower attendance at their events nsa is seeing the same trend but i can't think of a better place than nsa to overcome these challenges because we freely share ideas just like cavett envisioned and it's that spirit that has the power to take our individual knowledge and multiply it exponentially. NSA has a rich history of developing successful speakers, creating great leaders, and building relationships with others in the meeting industry. If we can build on that, but but continue to look forward, we can certainly design our future. So as we go into 2013, let's share in the celebration of 40 wonderful years of NSA. And let's share in our appreciation of our founder, Cabot Robert. And let's continue to share what we know so that we not only strengthen our businesses, we strengthen our industry, and we strengthen NSA. That's what I know. I hope in some way it's helpful to you.
0: Thank you, Ron. Well, that does it. Another edition of VOE is in the can, as they say. Thank you to our featured guests for sharing their insights and wisdom. Thank you to singer-songwriter Kelly McGrath for the music on VOE. Check her out at kellymcgrathmusic.com Thank you, too, to you, the listener, for well listening, and thank you to all of our NSA volunteers who make NSA possible. Thank you for the shout-outs, kind words, and emails. Peeps, appreciate the love. Here's hoping 2013 is your best year ever. And it won't be long
2: before our
8: ship comes in. I said, it won't be long